Well, this week, as we continue on in the book of James, go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 2. We are in our fourth week in the book of James, this letter that the Apostle James wrote to the church, and it is a highly practical, highly helpful, highly evaluational letter. Now, this morning, um, I'm mindful most of us probably, if not all of us, have a certain type of memory from our childhood or adolescence that has degrees of pain connected to it. And that is, for many, in PE or gym class. For some, it might have been when your friends were getting together to play a pickup game of basketball or whatever other type of competition um, might have been going on. And it is wherein the collective group nominates two captains... And then the captains go through the process by selection of ranking everyone from best to worst. And if you have ever been the person who was chosen last, you know that that sucketh. (laughs) That it doesn't feel good. And that can be a a painful feeling when they're going, "I'll, I'll, I'll take Johnny and I've got Horatio, and I'll take Zerubbabel. Makes perfect sense why they would pick Zerubbabel. Um, But they're going through this selection and this choice down to the last person. When you're the last person, it's not only hurtful because you've realized that the target is now on your back for all of the dodgeballs, but further because you recognize that at least amongst the two people who were selecting that out of all the people they looked at, that when they looked at you, they thought, for this reason or some reasons, this person I don't want on my team. And it came down to them being forced to put you on their team because you were the last person left to have been picked. And of course, whether it's your height or your weight or your athleticism your competitiveness, your looks, even your charisma, your personality, even popularity, whatever it might be, as superficial as some of those things might be, those are things that people can consider when choosing or not choosing who they want on their team when they're trying to win. See, this selective process tends to be executed on the basis of what someone has to offer how someone is going to help you and or your team do what you're trying to do or achieve or accomplish. What do you bring to the table? And James helps us see that although that might be the paradigm you have when you're selecting your team of competition or when you're at the YMCA trying to recruit your recreational team, that nothing could be farther from the paradigms that we ought to have as Christians in the body of Christ amongst other believers. James chapter 2, verse 1, hopefully you've taken the time to turn there. If you haven't, I warned you, so catch up. James chapter 2, verse 1, James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And you you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is zooming in on this issue of favoring the rich and neglecting the poor, but really not only this financial paradigm, he's digging into the heart issue, which he calls the sin of partiality, wherein we treat people differently based on what they think they can do for us or what they can give us or bring to us. Let's look again at verse one. He said, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. James is making it really clear and simple here that having faith in Jesus Christ, this Lord of glory, that being a Christian, being in front of this Jesus before whom we all will one day stand, that that means we don't have a right to prefer people before others based on external factors. Notice what he goes on to say in verse three. He said, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet. What does he say right here? He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? Notice James assumes that his audience recognizes this is wrong. He asks the question rhetorically, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? He says that in a way assuming that his audience recognizes that that is wrong. And he goes on to to call it more wrong by saying, and become judges with evil thoughts. Saying when we do this, we're judging with evil thoughts, evil hearts, evil motives. Why is this evil though? Because we are creating distinctions. We are creating separations where God did not place them. We're creating classes and categories that God did not create. We're making judgments that God did not make. Now, this is a motive issue, a heart issue, of course. So then that begs the question, why do we want to show favoritism to those who have wealth or status? Well, there's a few potential reasons. One a lot of times we want to be associated with them for whatever reasons that we esteem them or see them as desirable and we want to associate with them or be seen as associated to them, be perceived the same way that we esteem them based on these external factors. You know what that's called? It has a name. It's called pride. And we can go through the gamut of scripture to see how much that God hates pride. Whenever we want to elevate our view of ourselves in the eyes of others, God opposes the pride, Scripture says, or the proud. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So whenever you see welling up within yourself a desire to to make yourself look better for others, recognize that's a moment wherein God is resisting your heart and your motives and therefore also your actions. He's resisting you in those moments of pride. Yet when we humble ourselves and look for opportunities to lower the way that we look for others and and humble ourselves and evaluate our hearts therein, 
Then he gives grace. He gives his help, his unmerited favor. Another reason uh, that, that, that we can favor or play favorites to those whom we see as affluent or wealthy or whatever it might be is that we are hoping they will use their resources on us, right? There's a title for that as well. There's a name for that. It's called mooching. <laughs> Wherein we see someone who has something we don't have and we want it, their aid, their help, their resources, whatever it might be, their claims, their status, and we try and mooch and hope. Have you ever been around that person that is always making sure that you know about something they feel like they don't have or they're always making sure, like whenever you're around them, they keep dropping hints, hoping that your generosity will overflow onto them. And the heart of that is mooching. It is treating those people differently so that you hopefully will get from them what they have that you don't have. Now, why is all of this ungodly? Well, it's flattering those who have what you don't in hopes that they'll give you what you don't have rather than trusting in your good heavenly Father who owns all, who knows what you need and will never let you lack what you need. Notice I'm emphasizing the word need there. He'll never let you lack what you need when you are seeking him first. This is Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. This is right after Jesus goes through saying, hey, why are you worried about what you will wear or what you will eat? Don't you know that the ungodly worry about these things? God takes care of the birds and the flowers in the field. He cares a lot more about you. And if you'll seek God first... He will give you all these things for your heavenly father knows you have need of them. I was just paraphrasing a lot of that, but that's the sentiment there. Why is it that we treat people differently, hoping they will give us what we want when God has promised to give us everything we need? And he calls these behaviors evil and ungodly. See, partiality is one of those things that we all want to say we don't do. Like if I just simply asked all of you, if I said, how many of you make a habit or a practice of treating people different ways based on different things? Do you give preferential treatment to a certain group or a certain type of people? None of you, none of us is going to say, why, yes, I do. Thank you for asking. No, because we all innately recognize that that's a shady motive. And although we can hear this and we can sit here and go, well, I don't treat rich people differently. Well, first of all, let me just remind all of us that we are the rich people. If you weren't here a few weeks ago when I pointed that out, if you're not wondering where your next meal is coming from, you're rich. You might think, well, no, hard times, and I'm struggling with this and that financially. Listen, if you're not worried about how you're going to eat or how you're going to feed your family, like so many more people around the world are, you're rich, and the only reason you think you're not rich is because you're comparing yourself to those who have more than you. So, all that to say, why is it that we need to be careful about this, or why, um, why do we not only in this way practice that? Because we'll use what James says here, and we'll go, well, I'm, I'm not doing things like that where I'm giving special seats to people that have more money than me, and I'm not telling people who have less money than me to go away. 
or stand over there or certainly not telling them to sit at my feet. That's taboo. People will think I'm a jerk. Yeah. But there are different ways in our lives wherein we treat people differently with the same heart motive of, I want something from them, whether it's material or immaterial. I'm hoping to get something from them and therefore I'm going to treat them differently. That is the sin of partiality, and that is what James is trying to confront and shine a light on and cause all of us to evaluate, and he calls it judging with evil thoughts. Now, at a bare minimum, as it pertains to a church family, the local gathering of the body of Christ, this gathering of worship, this participation in the body of Christ, James just calls that evil. Further than that, even if we want to get outside of, of, of the body of Christ and how we are to treat one another, I don't think that it's honoring God to then allow these uh, preferential treatments even outside of the body of Christ. We go, oh, well, they're an unbeliever, so now I can show partiality. I don't think that that's necessarily a heart motive that would honor and glorify God either. Now, listen, I am not saying it's wrong to have friends and the people that you're naturally connected to that you spend your time with or whatever, I think that's good and fine and even gives glory and honor to God that these relationships that are based on mutual interests, that can be based on life experiences, I mean, you're still going to hang out with your friends. You're still going to have those natural connections and natural relationships, whether it's connections via your neighborhood or your jobs or your children's school or your children's extracurricular activities. You're cheering your kids on together. All of that is good and fine. And hopefully... Those relationships in our lives fall into one of two categories. Hopefully they either are mutually edifying Christ-centered relationships where even though we have a mutual interest like our kids' sports or something like that, that gives us a mutual interest that still we're believers and we can edify and encourage one another. It's a Christ-centered relationship. On the other hand, the way in which it's not that is if this relationship is with an unbeliever wherein that, that relationship hopefully is missional at that point, right? Like it ought to be one of the two. If you have a relationship with a believer in Christ, then it ought to be a Christ-centered relationship. No matter what other different things might have brought you together, when you find out that there's faith in Christ there, man, that's an opportunity to edify, to encourage, to, to check on, to pray for, whatever different ways we can encourage each other through faith in Christ. Yet the other relationships we have with other soccer moms and dads or with other parents or other neighbors or coworkers or fellow students and peers, those relationships that are not Christ-centered, we ought to be viewing and approaching all of them missionally, right? Those are people that we want to bring to the Lord that we hope will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, although it is good and natural and even God-glorifying to have relationships that are built around mutual interests and natural connections, what does God find most beautiful? That's what we want to ask, right? What does God find most beautiful? What does God delight in the most? What gives God glory the most? 
I think more so than just natural, secular connections, I think the thing that gives God the most glory is when people of different backgrounds, different experiences, different races, different classes, different workforces, different neighborhoods, different levels of political convictions, different bank accounts, different clothing brands, people who are different in every way, gather together, united as one around the glory of Christ, united in one spirit, as Ephesians says, a people who are all equally guilty of sin before God and are all, therefore, equally needy, equally needy, and therein all collectively invited into the family. All of us forgiven, all of us made new, all of us saved by one Savior and united around that Savior's one mission, which is to seek and save the lost. Not the mission of padding up our lives and our interests. Not the mission of staying comfortable. Not the mission of prioritizing convenience. The Great Commission, wherein we go and make disciples of all nations, which means a lot of people unlike us, right? People who are different than us. And our natural inclinations are going to be to go to the people that we feel comfortable with, which are the people who are like us. And James is warning us here, not only to withhold the gospel and not only to just share the gospel and share love with those who are like us, but especially with those who are unlike us. See, when we treat those who are different than us as if they are the same as us, it shows the world that Jesus Christ is our treasure and his people are our family. I'll say that one more time. When we treat those who are different than us as if they are the same as us. It shows the world that Jesus Christ is our treasure, not our stuff, not our things, not our achievements, not our ambitions, but Jesus Christ is our treasure and that his people are our family. Do you ever think about this? When you look at extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandma, grandpa, all the extended family that we have, in that family, oftentimes there are people who have different levels of money. There are people with different jobs, different careers, different savings accounts, different retirement scenarios. Yet when they're family, it's not like you have the wealthy Christmas group over here and the less so Christmas group over here. No, it's the family comes together. And you might be like, well, my family's not like that. I'm sorry that maybe you might not have... Um, a great family experience. I'm sorry if that's the case for you. By goodness and by God's design, that would be what be, would be right and be God-honoring. Yet, when we, when we show through our lives, through treating people who look and appear different than us for whatever different reasons, when we treat them as if they are the same as us, that means that we recognize that we are all equally needy before Christ, that we've all been forgiven in, in him and by him, that we all have received the same Holy Spirit. 
and that we are therefore his family. Another way in which James points out the error of partiality is that it is contrary to the communicated heart of God in Scripture. Partiality is different than the nature of God we see in the Bible. Let's look back again at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Think for just a minute. Stop and think about all throughout the Bible, all the many, many, many times, the many times where the lesser, the weaker, the least likely to be chosen were the ones that God chose. Jacob, the second born, was chosen instead of the firstborn Esau. Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's sons at the time, became the one that God would use to not only save Jacob's family, but what would become the chosen people of Israel. David wasn't even brought before the prophet Samuel when Samuel shows up to Jesse's house and says, hey, bring your sons because God told me that I'm to anoint one of your kids as the future king. Jesse doesn't even bring David. He leaves him out in the field with a flock because he's thinking, it definitely ain't little David. It's probably this one. And one by one by one by one by one, God says, nope, 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 nope. And God says through the prophet Samuel, hey, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Moses was a man who argues with the call of God saying, God, I can't go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. I'm not good with words. I've got a stuttering problem. And God says to Moses, who made man's mouth? Who decided whether man would speak or be mute, would be deaf or hear, would be blind or see? Is it not I, the Lord? So I'm not picking you because you have an ability. In fact, I'm picking you because you don't, because I get the glory from using you, not you. No one gets to go, wow, look at the orational skills of Moses. No, people go, look what God is doing through this man. Consider this ragtag bunch of disciples that Jesus chose. What a hot mess. <laughs> Consider further this ragtag group of disciples that Jesus chose. What a hot mess. God calls all of us together, not because of what we bring to the table, not because of what we look like, not because of our prosperity or wealth or what we bring in. He chooses us in his pleasure, for his purposes, for his glory, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our deficiencies, in spite of what we do not bring to the table, because he goes, I'm setting the table. This is why we need to ask God to help us see others the way he sees others. When we look on the outward appearance, like those who are prone to do what James is warning against, where we might look at someone and judge a book by its cover and decide whether or not that person is like us or whether or not we should be friends with that person or whether or not that's a person that we want to draw into our lives, we need to ask God to help us see people the way he sees them, not on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We can't see their heart, Stephen, so how are we supposed to do that? Yeah, we can't see their heart, but what we can see from the word of God is that they are created in the image of God with, with intrinsic value and worth as an image bearer of God. 
They are someone for whom Jesus Christ died. They are someone whom God loves and has given us opportunity to show his love, his welcome, and drawing them in. This begs another question as we look through Scripture and consider how much God honors or chooses the poor. Why would God do that? Why would he honor the poor so much? And I think a few reasons are because the poor are going to be far less prone to have love for the things of this world. They're going to be far less prone to trust in themselves. They're going to be far less prone to pride because their circumstances by nature are are humbling. They're going to be far less prone to place their hope in worldly possessions because they don't possess them nearly as much. They're going to be way more prone to trust in God because that's all they've got. They're going to be way more prone to be content and thankful for what they do have because they have so little. Have you ever thought about if many of you, hopefully, if you've ever been on a missions trip to a third world country, you get outside of America and you go to Mexico or to Haiti or to wherever it might be and you can get out and look and learn real fast. Well, Stephen was right. I am rich. And what's so interesting is when you go to those communities that are just poverty stricken, you see smiles so big. You see a people who have a contentment and a joy that Americans are grasping for by buying the next thing. That you can go to a place where people have nothing and they're happy. Yet did you know in America as, as possessions have increased Depression has increased. Why? Because we think our happiness is found in these things rather than in Christ. And we keep getting these things thinking they'll finally make us happen or make us happy. And we keep grabbing the next pacifier going, oh man, I'm still hungry. That wasn't in the notes. Where were we? I think they're going to be, the poor are more prone to place their hope in the next life because their current life is uncomfortable and difficult. The poor are going to be more prone or far less prone to that cardinal nasty sin of pride. Why? Because their circumstances are humbling by nature. They don't think they've made something of themselves. They don't think they hiked up their bootstraps and got themselves to where they are. They don't think I worked to get here. They don't think I studied and I accomplished. No, they recognize, here I am. And so that, those are some of the reasons why I think Scripture honors the poor so much and wherein we need to be taught by their hearts. And again, recognize for all of us who are rich that we have challenges because we are rich, spiritually. Let me set out a caveat. Rich does not equal sinful. Rich does not equal evil. As I said previously, Scripture teaches us that it's not money is the root of all evil. It's not. The love of money 
is the root of all evil. Rich doesn't equal sinful, which is good news for all of us rich folk. All of us. All of us Americans. Yet the Bible does make it abundantly clear that it does equal spiritually disadvantaged. Those of us who are rich, it is harder for us to recognize our need for Christ because we have all this stuff that tells us we have everything we need except for when we feel that little hunger that, ah, still not complete. And instead of going, oh, this stuff isn't what I need. Jesus Christ is what I need. And so this stuff no longer satisfies me, so I need another stuff. Scripture mentions some very wealthy godly people like Lydia, like Onesimus, and and several others. And so Riches in and of themselves are not evil and can be good, can be used, and should be used for God's purposes. Amen? So what is the difference between the worldly rich and the godly rich? The worldly rich want to do anything and everything they can to accumulate more for themselves. That's the heart of the worldly rich, that they just want more. They just want more. Notice what James said and what we already read in verses 6 and 7. He said, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So the ungodly rich are those who will do whatever they can to gain more, even at oppressing others or subjugating others or taking advantage of others, is what James is pointing out here. The ungodly rich only care about gaining more. While the godly rich recognize that they are merely stewards of God's riches. That their money actually ain't their money. Their home is not their home. Their possessions are not their possessions. Their resources are not really theirs at all. They recognize that there is a master, a Lord watching what we do with what he gave us. Therefore, we are to use what he gave us for His purpose is not our own. And his mission pushes and calls us out of comfort and calls us out of convenience, calls us out of our preferences and calls us into the unknown. (laughs) Oh, boy. Also not in my notes. Lord, help me. That means our possessions, our money, our time, our relationships, our homes, everything that is ours is not ours. It's his. It's his. So how do we fight these tendencies? How do we combat our proneness to think about ourselves and prefer or show preferential treatment? We need more seats at our tables and more room in our schedule. We need more seats at our table, more room in our schedules. Because what we are prone to do is go me, my form, no more, my little group of people that I like, my people that are like me, that we get along, we like the same things, leave that alone, don't touch it. And that's a good thing. God is glorified in providing that for you. But he gets even more glory when you take that and you go, hey, that person out there or that person over there who doesn't look like us, let's invite him in. That new person, that person who doesn't fit yet, who doesn't have a place, who doesn't feel like they're known or that they belong yet, what if we opened up our home, our life, our schedule, our wallet, our community group 
to make more room at the table. Ultimately, the table is representative of our hearts. Make more room in our hearts. Because you can just go, well, all right, pastor. I guess I'll invite more people over and I guess I'll, uh, you know, I don't want to be like a bad Christian or whatever. So I guess I'll do a community group or start one or open mine up to more people or different people than me or whatever. But if you don't open your heart, it makes no difference. And you're kind of just doing begrudging lip service at that point. You're doing the deed. It's a dead service. God's glorified when his grace changes our heart to go, hey, you were saved by grace through faith just like me. We're the same. You might look different. We might have different clothes. You might live in a different neighborhood, but we're the same because of what Christ has done for us because we were all dead in sin. But he gave his mercy and his grace to all of us and we're the same before him. God is no respecter of persons, the scripture teaches us. Well, but what if inviting people in leads them to ruining or breaking my stuff? Don't you mean God's stuff? He's got plenty. But if I start filling my schedule up with church things or missional things, when will I have time for myself or the things that I want? And I don't even have to dig into the, the, what that sounds like. You wouldn't say that to each other, but you would think it. I would think it. Guys, we have to start coming to grips with the ways in which our society and our culture has formed our view of how we ought to live, oftentimes more so than the word of God forms the way that we live. When we prioritize leisure, convenience, ease, hobbies, and pleasure above mission on our schedules, we are letting secular America lead our paradigms, not scripture. When we prioritize work above being missional with our lives, we are letting the love of money dictate our decisions, not scripture. When we prioritize those who are like us in this world or above us, as we might say, when we prioritize those above, those who are unlike us in this world, we are letting culture, comfort, and convenience dictate our decisions, not scripture, not the gospel, not the heart of God. My hope and my prayer is something that you heard me say in that Easter mission mode video earlier in the service, that our church would become a church who has open eyes to see and open hearts to welcome. Sometimes it takes us picking up our head and looking around, wherein it is a good thing when you come to church and see someone you know and love and you naturally are connected to each other to say, hey, and then you start talking whatever your shared interests are or your experiences are. But all the more, we need to be a people who look up and go, who don't I know? Who looks alone? Who looks like they don't belong yet? Who looks like they don't fit? Who's the person that's kind of just sitting there going, I don't know anybody yet, and I don't know about this. This is weird. Jesus, people. What if our weirdness was that we just loved them so much? Isn't one of the marks of Christianity that we are known by our love for one another? Not our love for those who are like us. Not our love for those who make us feel comfortable and we all agree on everything and that our lives match and fit perfectly together. God gets more glory by the different people being joined together.
in Christ. Amen? Listen, if it's going to help you to imagine Jesus sitting next to you or standing next to you or walking with you everywhere you go with everything that you do to help you walk out mindfulness of God, do that. Do that if it'll help you. Because here's the deal. If Jesus was standing next to you all day long as you came to church or as you went out and about or whatever you might be doing, it would affect the things you do. And the problem is we forget he is in us. <laughs> the Holy Spirit hasn't dwelt us as believers, that he is not only with us, standing next to us, but he's literally in us. So if it's going to help you grow in these things that you're going, oh, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with this, just picture Jesus standing right next to you with his arm around you saying, hey, I'm with you too. And picture him, imagine what would we do with our lives, with our schedule, with our priorities, with our relationships, if we imagined he was with us at all times and then reminded ourselves, oh yeah, I don't have to imagine. I've got the spirit of God in me. God, I need to be more mindful of you. I need to think about you. If we need to buy a bracelet or a ring or set reminders on our smartphones or get rid of our smartphones for a flip phone or if we need to tie a string on our finger like we used to do a long time ago to remind ourselves to be more mindful of God and consider him all the time, that's what we need to do, whatever it takes to help us be more mindful of our Lord of glory that James talked about in James 2.1. This Lord of glory before whom we all will stand one day. This Lord of glory whom all of us are looking forward to with our eternal hope. This Lord of glory is in us at all times. And we need to say, Lord, help me see people the way you see people. Everything we have is his. That's why we are on his mission that's why one of our core values at the church is we, we say yes to the greater things because we are called to live in light of eternity when we have to choose between lesser things in this life, meaning things that are unworthy of our time and between things that are eternal. Let's say yes to the greater things to the eternal things, when we get to choose between me and my four and my comfort zone and stepping out into uncomfort and unknown and people that I think might be different and who knows how this is gonna go, whatever these differences are, step into that with the Lord, with the Holy Spirit empowering you and go, yeah, I wanna be on your mission. I don't wanna get to the end of my life and go, I live for me. We don't want that. We don't wanna get to our deathbeds and go, we just did everything we wanted made sure that we were comfortable, made sure that we were convenient, made sure that we were happy, made sure that we had all of our pleasures and our joys and all the things that we like. And what kind of story do we want to tell with our lives? What kind of account do we want to give to our master? I'm preaching at me. We've got to start asking ourselves, how could I give God the most glory from the way I treat others, especially those who are not like me? How would God get the most glory from the way I use my resources? Do you own a home? Ask yourself, how can I use my home in a way that will give God the most glory? Can I use my home as a lighthouse for the gospel? Can I use my home as a training center for, the, uh, for gospel work? Can my home be a beacon of biblical hospitality? Ask yourself this. This will help you out a lot. If Jesus physically lived with me in my home, how would I use my home? 
Like if Jesus was your roommate, how would you use your home? You would probably be like, so Jesus, do you want me to have anybody over anytime that you could like teach about yourself? Do you want me to maybe make a spread for them that we could feed them and bless them and love them and care for them and serve them that way so, so that they could feel your love and be maybe open to receive the gospel or, or feel cared for or an opportunity to encourage and strengthen? How would you use your home if Jesus was your roommate? Further similar than that, if Jesus sat next to me while I made my schedule, how would I make my schedule? If you got out your planner, your notebook, your iPad, your phone, whatever, your calendar, if you're old school and still like to use pen and paper, more power to you. If you got it out and Jesus was sitting right next to you and you're going, okay, let's look at the schedule this week. Jesus, what should I do? What would your schedule look like? What things would you say yes to? What things would you say no to? See, the problem here is that we forget our Lord. And we think we're the Lord. And we stop asking the Lord what he wants us to do with his money, his house, his time, his possessions, his relationships. It's all his. And this sin of partiality, this anti-gospel, anti-missional perspective comes from two things. It comes from forgetting he's with us and and why we are here. Or by forgetting what he's done for us, which leads us to serving his purposes with gratitude and humility. If we treat others differently, that means we have forgotten that he sees all, not only our actions, but also our motives. And as we close, verses 8 through 13 in that same James chapter 2, it says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. He quotes the Old Testament the law of God, saying love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are, a, who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is arguing that to treat people as, with partiality as a Christian is to violate the law of God, namely love for our neighbor. And doing so, subjecting ourselves to God's judgment. As he said, if, if you've broken one thing, you're guilty of all. James is trying to help us see how serious this is. Because this is one of those things we don't think is really bad. This is one of those things that's not as scandalous as some other sins. And so we read this chapter and go, oh yeah, be nice to everybody. All right, next. He's trying to throw a lot of weight on what he's saying right here because he's comparing it and attaching it to the old covenant law of loving your neighbor. And he says, if you don't do this, you're guilty of all of it and under judgment. 
Remember what James said in verse one of this chapter. So my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Lord of glory. What an interesting thing to say that once more, we can just breeze past Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, sure. I'll stop for just a second and think about this. James is one of the three, Peter's, James, and John, who were at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is in manifest glory, where they are watching what's happening, seeing Jesus in his glorified state, and they're wigging out. This same James right here calls Jesus the Lord of glory and saying, if you're going to hold the faith of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, you must do it without partiality. He's connecting our view to the day wherein we will see him in his glory. That when we consider these people who are different than us for whatever reasons, that we might look at them and judge the book by his cover. He's saying, hey, you and that person that are different, for eternity, you're going to be next to each other. Looking at each other, looking at Jesus, looking at each other, looking at Jesus, looking at each other, looking at Jesus, going, do you see this? Can you believe this? Can you believe he called you and me and and saved us, both of us, that both of us were dead in our sin, and he saved both of us, and here we are beholding his glory, the Lord of glory. This is unlike anything we've ever seen. For eternity... We get to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ that makes all these stupid little differences look stupid. The glory of Christ that makes all of us look around the room and go different, 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 but the same. Different, 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 but loved. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Our God delights in showing mercy. He shows mercy to the alcoholic and to the glutton. He shows mercy to the drug addict and to the gossip. He shows mercy to the one who had an affair and to the one who's addicted to pornography. He shows mercy to the thief and mercy to that who tells little white lies. He shows mercy to the Democrat, to the Republican, the independent, the uninvolved. He shows mercy to those who have shown partiality. Thank God. He shows mercy to all who come to him in faith and repentance. The psalmist declares he is good to all. Lamentations chapter 3 tells us of the goodness of God and that his mercies are new every morning. Today, wherein the word of God has pricked my heart, hopefully yours, hopefully all of ours, because we've all fallen short in this area in a time or another, that God has mercy, not condemnation for us. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how bad you think you are, And probably rightly so, God has mercy for you today. New every morning. You wonder if God's got mercy for you? Did you see the sun today? It's a new morning. Maybe you got less sleep last night, but the sun came up and there's mercy for you today. But Stephen, I've done that thing 200 times. It's a new day. There's new mercy for you today. 